here, just go to Google Play Store, App Store, whatever store it is, you could get your digital apps and download this and find us at OD Baptist on Rumble. This is one of the major platforms that we use to push out all of our content. You can still find us on Facebook and YouTube, a little bit on Instagram, uh, Sermon Audio as well. Don't forget about them. But go ahead and download Rumble. Follow us on uh, that platform at OD Baptist to get all of our teachings, sermons, messages, things like that. We'll see you over there. Here at Open Door Baptist Church, we take pride in our diamond ministry. You see, the diamonds are a group of people that are age 50 or older. And this ministry really just centers around a group of people that love on each other, pray for each other, have great times of fellowship. And there's two main events that happen every single month. Basically, the first one happens typically the third Friday of every month at 6 p.m. here at the church. And what this is, is we call this our diamond dinner. For those age 50 or above, you don't have to be a member of the church. Just come on out here and have a wonderful meal and a time of fellowship with our resident chef's will, uh, owner and purveyor, I guess purveyor, of Grumpy Dog, as well as our resident chef, Russ. So be here for that if you're age 50 or older. And then also, typically every single month, they have what's known as the Diamond Excursion. And so just like the word excursion means, but like I said, what I wanted to do is look at this particular article based upon the video that we just watched. Now, the video we just watched was really good. Was it, was it not a really good, very compelling video that sort of addresses some objections people have to the resurrection, like the fact that, all oh, the disciples, they just lied. Well, why would they lie? They had nothing to gain, right? And he's going to bring something up about that in this article. Oh, the hallucination theory. He's going to bring that up, and we're going to look at that as well. So there's a lot of good information. So if you want to know just basics on what to regurgitate as far as if somebody asks you about why do you believe in the resurrection, and you want to look at it from historical uh, facts, if you will, that would be a really good video to show them and use and base off them. Now, that being said, like I had already mentioned, be careful in regurgitating because you will come across that one skeptic, that one cynic that's like, okay, who says, you know, he, he rose from the dead. Uh, he's going to try to argue, what about the misplaced body? What about the stolen body theory? They're going to argue all the scholars that said, oh, Jesus Christ did exist. Okay, who are the scholars, you know, and where's this research coming from? So they're going to probably ask a lot of questions that you may not even know. And so if we're trying to defend the faith and then people are attacking us, a lot of times, if we don't have the answers, the skeptic's just going to look at us like, see, they don't have the answers. Christianity doesn't have the answers. But I'd encourage you, one way to handle that, if you do want to regurgitate, is to just merely say, that's a good point. Can I look that up and get back with you later? What's a good phone number, contact, whatever the case is? Because now what you're doing is you're allowing them to know that you're human, that you haven't looked at that particular question yet. And so you want to answer their question from a biblical perspective, and then by getting their contact, they're going to be willing and ready to re-engage with you, because they're like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to steamroll this Christian, you know, with all these facts. So they're going to be ready to re-engage, but it gives you time to do some more research to go ahead and continue this discussion farther along in hopes to go ahead and uh, not necessarily convince, but to persuade them of the resurrection. So... 
like I said, I would not uh, recommend regurgitating. So that's what we're doing tonight. We're looking at this guy's article, and we're going to uh, examine some certain pieces of it. Now, where is this article from? This is from a website called Medium. Basically, a me- the Medium is basically a website that anybody can post an article about anything. You can find theistic articles, atheistic articles, pantheistic articles. You can find articles on any topic. Essentially, it's sort of like this is YouTube for article writing. All right. And so this is where this article is found. This is the base, basic beginning of it. What we're going to look at, like I said, I'm going to pull out some things from the actual article itself. This first one, he says in the beginning, in the critique, he's going to make up for the straw atheist shortcomings. Remember, this is all about the video we just watched. And then discuss the negative portrayal of atheists in the video and his take. And so, like I said, he's going to take that video and he's going to try to show how the atheist was portrayed inaccurately and how no atheist would use those arguments or whatever. Then he's going to try to show how the apologist's arguments were lame and weak and unsubstantiated. Now, the five facts, if you will, the historical facts that the video points out are part of what's known as the minimal facts arguments of the resurrection, which was coined by Gary Habermas, Dr. Gary Habermas. He actually wrote it, if I'm not mistaken, based on his dissertation, PhD dissertation at Liberty University. And so if you were to ask anybody that's actually studied the resurrection from all sides, theistic, atheistic, More often than not, you're going to find out Dr. Gary Habermas is considered the leading expert in the resurrection of Christ. And so we're going to be looking at some of that as well. So the video only pulls out five of what's considered 12 minimally facts arguments. Basically, what are the facts that are so well attested to that scholars on both sides virtually agree on? Okay, now not all of them, but most of them virtually agree. And that's what he's going to be looking at refuting. So the first thing he says, as far as this minimal facts approach, remember when they showed the slide and said all these different people, they believe Jesus Christ existed. He lived. Atheist and theistic people. He says, the apologist claims these five facts are backed by so much historical evidence, most professional scholars who study the subject accept the five points is true. That includes skeptical atheistic, uh, atheist scholars, which is what the video said. Then it does mention a panel of 16 scholars with two in Christian cleric garb, meaning they're, I think they're identified as priests, and then some other people. Then he points out, consider the way the apologist's uh, words in this unproven statistic, he calls it unproven, among those who study. He says this definition could be employed to skew the panel of experts. He says he has yet to reveal, see a poll of relevant experts weigh in. So one thing I really looked at, when he's trying to say, among those who study the resurrection, if you want unbiased information, you want people who studied the resurrection. You don't want somebody's biased presupposition, preconceived notion to say, I've never really considered both sides of the argument, so I'm just not going to believe, or I'm just going to believe. You want people to study any topic when you're getting this polling data. This other aspect is, He's never read Habermas's dissertation. I can almost guarantee you, you can find this on Liberty University's website, amongst other places. This is a, almost a 400-page dissertation that Dr. Gary Habermas had written back in 1976 when he was going for his PhD on what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
in that, it's, like I said, it's almost 400 pages. The bibliography, which isn't the footnotes, the citation, it is what books, what authors are all the citations coming of, out of? 12 pages. 12 page bibliography. When I was in seminary and working on my master's, I maybe had like a two or three page bibliography. Right in his dissertation, he had 12 pages. Now, I've never went for a doctorate before. I don't know if that's normal to have 12 pages of bibliography. But what I'm trying to point out, that along with 600 pages of manuscript notes, when he was compiling all this, he has documented 600 pages of notes. This guy's trying to say there's no citations for these facts being proven. The guys never read Habermas's dissertation, never considered one out of the 12 pages of the bibliography or any of the 600 manuscript notes he wrote to do his dissertation to prove this is where the information is coming from. Now, what he's arguing is the video doesn't say, but the video is getting the information from Habermas's dissertation. There's quite a lot of citations on this. Then he says, this phrasing could also indicate any priest or pastor, and yet exclude historians like Philip Jenkins or John Allegro who argue against Jesus' historicity. Remember, he's saying out of the, how he worded it, of those who study, see, now he's trying to remove those that don't believe in the historicity of Jesus Christ by the terminology. Let's look at these two people, Philip Jenkins and John Allegro. Because I don't think he did his own fact-checking himself. Anybody familiar with these two names? Philip Jenkins, about a year before this guy wrote his article, actually wrote a piece saying, what you can't do, though, without venturing into far swamps of extreme crankery, is to argue that Jesus never existed. The Christ myth hypothesis is not scholarship and is not taken seriously in the respected academic debate. This is an atheist that, remember, the guy just said Philip Jenkins denied the historicity of Christ. This is Philip Jenkins saying, you can't deny the historicity of Jesus Christ. So just because this guy's name dropping someone doesn't mean that's what that guy actually means or says. He actually says it's not even taken seriously it doesn't matter, Christian or not, theist or atheist or agnostic. It doesn't matter. The historicity of Jesus Christ is so well attested, virtually no scholar who studied the resurrection rejects the historicity of Christ. That's why it's important when you're doing polling that the polling comes from people that actually have put in the research. Now, there are some that reject it. Habermas gives that. He says there are some people that still reject it, and that's fine. I think it was like 70, 80%, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, most scholars agreed. So that was Philip Jenkins. John Allegro, this is what John Allegro believed. He believed that Jesus Christ was a code for a type of hallucinogen. He actually believes Jesus is a psychedelic, a symbol for a psychedelic drug or a mushroom. And so this guy is going on to the limb of taking Philip Jenkins, who actually believed in the history of Jesus Christ, and John Allegro, who believes that Jesus is a symbol for a psychedelic drug. 
It said there on the bottom, Allegro's theories were not accepted by everyone in the academic establishment. The historian Dr. Henry Chadwick wrote in the Daily Telegraph that there was no particle of evidence for all this exciting conjecture. Allegro's work reads like a Semitic phylogist uh, erotic nightmare after consuming a highly indigestible meal of a hallucinogenic fungi. So Allegro was merely trying to say he's one of maybe a very small handful. There is a fringe group that believes that Jesus is just a, a symbol of a drug that they use. And it was part of an order, like you read up there, a cryptic version of ancient sex cults. And so that's what Allegro believes. Another thing that this article says is the straw atheist does not point out that the Bible is far from an ideal historical document. So, let me back up for a minute. So, he had made this reference to Philip and John Allegro, and he just made mention of there's no citations. But there's no citations here for Philip Jenkins or John Allegro in his article. So, he's not even citing his arguments as well. Well, mm-hmm. Two names. Right, now, yeah, and I, and I know there's a logical fallacy, and, you know, we're all aware, you know, fallacy of authority, saying that something's true just because so-and-so believes it, and like, like you said, it doesn't mean there's credence, but at least, you know, with Habermas, he points out there's a lot of different people, different types, backgrounds, you know, scholarship, scholarly people, and this guy, it just seems like they're just, I don't know who they are outside of what I pulled, but... So this guy here, when he says the Bible is far from an ideal historical document, what I would like to ask him is, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that it's far from a historical document? He is presupposing that there is no history recorded in the Bible. And yet again, there is no citations to say who else believes in this. So he says the Bible is far from an ideal historical document, but how about all the names and places that were discovered from archaeology? One thing I love about biblical archaeology, we have a video by Dr. Paul Miles who goes over a lot of the key findings as of late that corroborate Scripture. One of the, you've heard, it, heard me say it before, Belshazzar is one of the most fascinating finds of, that I came across with the Nabonidus uh, Chronicle. Because in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar was the king and he said, Daniel, if you can read the handwriting on the wall, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third? Nebuchadnezzar, you know, told Daniel to be the second. Belshazzar was going to say third. Skeptics are like, Belshazzar was never a king. He's never listed on the list of Babylonian kings. See, Daniel got it wrong. It's made up. Until the Nabonidus Chronicle and the Nabonidus Cylinder were discovered. And Nabonidus was Belshazzar's father. Nabonidus went to Arabia. Belshazzar was left co-regent of Babylon. And so Belshazzar was number two. Daniel could have only been number three. Only somebody that lived during that time period would have known that. And so the Bible is a very historical document that's well attested by things we dig up on the ground all the time. Then he says, uh, there are two other early accounts of Christians, that of Tacitus, writing in 116 in the New Testament itself. The New Testament, which was passed as oral tradition for at least a generation before being committed to writing. 
Then he says the earliest surviving archaeological copy of any portion of the New Testament dates to 112. Again, I would love to ask him, where's your sources? Where's your proof of anybody saying that it was passed down as an oral tradition for a generation before it was committed to writing? I see no footnotes. I, I see no, subs, you know, what do you call it, superscripts and the numbers. I see no sites. And yet it's the same thing he's trying to say this other guy's doing. Well, first, the fact that we have any document that is that close to Christ is astounding. That's 2,000 years old. But then, when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we realize that most people will put the letter of Corinthians around beginning to mid part of AD 50, we realize that's about 20 years from the death of Jesus Christ. And in that letter, he talks about a creed that was given to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. And in that creed, it talks about the death, burial, resurrection, and the witness of Jesus Christ. So that creed had to have been established before he wrote that letter to Corinthians. And so when you start backdating all these things, so you got the Corinthian church and the Corinthian letter in the 50s, then you look at, okay, when was Paul, when was Paul saved? When was Damascus road? And people look at it between the death of Stephen the martyr, Acts chapter 7, and the death of the Apostle James in Acts chapter 12. Somewhere between those two chapters, Paul was converted, Acts chapter 9, on the Damascus Road. So what are the dates for Stephen's martyrdom and for James's martyrdom? We get back to about 38 AD is about roughly when people believe Paul was saved on the Damascus Road. Then he was given that creed that time or earlier, you're merely maybe five years from the death of Christ. That word is already spreading about his death, burial, and his resurrection. And so, let alone finding something from, he only references Tacitus right here, but finding something that's dated 112 AD, which is less than 100 years from his crucifixion, is astounding anyways. You probably heard me say it before, the fact that anybody wrote anything in the Roman Empire, about a traveling Jewish preacher? This is amazing in and of itself. Why would a Roman historian write anything about a Jewish preacher? They hated the Jews. Maybe this Jewish preacher was, uh, was someone of importance back then. So we actually have a lot of manuscripts that we'll look at too. He says, unfortunately for the apologist, Josephus only supports vague interpretations of two of the five points. Now, there's a couple parts in the writings of Josephus. One of them is believed to be a, a hoax, a forgery of latter uh, Catholic editions. I think it was by Eusebius. But then there is another account that does not provide any sort of evidence there is any forgery or hoax that both attest to what was been known at the time of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even if we only have Josephus now, We've heard the name before. Josephus wrote about 93 AD. Okay, so it was after the temple destruction, before the turn of the century. You're looking at roughly 60 years after the death of Christ. Josephus was a traitor. He was a Jewish traitor. Spared his life to go work for Rome, if you will, essentially. And so the fact that he wrote, not just in one of his writings, but in multiple writings of this Jewish rabbi that did 
wonders. But he's only one of many people that wrote about this man named Jesus. Or this person they called the Christ. There is quite a few extra-biblical writings, meaning writings that are not in the Bible, that talk about this person. That talk about this resurrection that was believed to have happened. Marabar Sarpion, I believe, is around 73, 78 AD. And so even with his, you're less than 50 years from the death of Christ. There's a lot, a lot of extra-biblical writings about Jesus Christ, especially his historicity. And so for this guy to say there is no historical evidence for Jesus Christ even existed, let alone being resurrected, he's not being honest. He's totally not being honest. Moving on, he says, okay, when we're talking about the main uh, theories on why the tomb was empty, he says, an alternatively viable explanation is that after the death of Jesus, a story including the resurrection was fabricated. Or perhaps a Roman soldier was bribed to assist the Christians to let them access the tomb while the others were on break. Or perhaps some contingent of these Romans were secretly converted by the apostles. Maybe the rumors of the Romans guarding the tomb was a lie and the rock's weight exaggerated. So he provides some other Again, I hate the word. They're not theories. They're hypotheses. Okay, he provides some alternate hypotheses as far as why was that tomb empty. These are the most common ones. Now, some of these were addressed in the video. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus Christ wasn't actually dead when he was placed in the tomb. That Jesus Christ was merely uh, clinging to life, if you will, and the coolness of the tomb resuscitated his body and he got up and he walked out. Then you got the misplaced body that the apostles, I, I don't know where we put them. That's their theory. They have the stolen body that the apostles went and stole the body out. The hallucination theory and the fact that they all hallucinated that they saw Jesus resurrect. And then the wrong tomb theory when they went to the empty tomb, they actually went to the wrong tomb. You know, which again, all these have a lot of, a lot of holes. And then you can find a lot of arguments as far as why each of those are severely, severely bad arguments. But we're going to look at what he's bringing up. He's saying, okay, maybe the resurrection was fabricated. So the apostles just merely made it up, fabricated it, if you will. Number one, remember, the apostles didn't expect Messiah to die at all. They expected Jesus Christ to come and establish the kingdom. Even after he resurrected and the women told the apostles, they still didn't believe because they never expected Jesus to die, let alone resurrect. Remember in Acts chapter 5? Remember when the church was starting to grow really big? And then they were talking about, what do we do with all this? You know, they're getting this huge following. And then Gamaliel stands up when they're trying to figure out what are they going to do with this following that's happening. There's two people they mention. One's Judas, not Iscariot, but there's another man by the name of Judas and another one, I knew I was going to forget, I believe it was Thaddeus. But they, he brings them up saying they both had followings, they both ended up dying and their followings dispersed. And so Gamaliel says, if this is of God, leave it alone because you're going to be fighting with God. 
But if it's of man, it's going to die out like these other two that have already died out. Acts chapter 5, verses 36 and 37. And so essentially what they were saying was these other people, they were false messiahs. And in Israel's history as well, back then, before Christ, and even after Christ, there have been false messiahs. These false messiahs would have been known to them as well, and their messiahs died and didn't resurrect. Jesus Christ did. There's a big difference there. Number one, and number three is, using this fabrication story, it doesn't explain the explosive growth of the church and how it grew so rapidly. And then again, we talked about this before. Why would they die for something they knew to be a lie? I mean, what sense would that make? I know I don't have a Mercedes Benz in my garage, but I'm going to die for that lie. Really? I mean, what, kind of, what, what sense is that? Oh, but Muslims do it all the time. They die in jihad, right? There's a big difference. Muslims die for a belief. They think what they're doing is right. The apostles either saw or they didn't see. They would have known what was a lie or what was truth. So it is disanalogous to say Muslims will die for for jihad. No, they're dying for what they believe is right. The apostles, they're dying for what they know they saw. Difference would be if I were to die as a martyr, I'm dying for my belief in the empty tomb. The apostles, they're a different group. Because they either saw it or they didn't. Maybe one, but not all 12 of them would die. And again, fabricated the story. Where's the body? Where is the body? Pontius Pilate, anybody in the Roman Empire, with all the turmoil that was coming up, you see what happened with Nero with the great fire in 64. Now he blamed it on the Christians, then started using Christians as torches. All they had to do was reveal a body. And they have never been able to reveal the body of Christ. So no, it wasn't fabricated. What about a Roman soldier was bribed to assist Christians to let them get in while the Roman guards were on break? Well, number one, the Roman guards wouldn't be on break. They were guarding that tomb with their life because guess what? If that tomb was empty, they're executed. Why? Why were the guards there? Because the government knew that the resurrection or the the hide the hid body of Christ would do what had happened. They did not want that to happen. So they set a garrison there to make sure that nobody could get to the body of Jesus Christ. Completely ignorant of first century uh, Israel-Rome relations. Rome hated the Jewish people. The Jewish people hated the Romans. A Roman would not risk their life or limb to include their family's execution to commit this coercion. No. Again, John chapter 20, verse 7. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. When you read John chapter 20, verse 7, John makes a very important point to say the napkin that was on the face of Jesus was folded. It was folded. Now, if you're trying to hurry up and get a body out there you're not going to spend time folding a napkin. No, you're going to get it and just go. You're going to leave everything behind. If you look at the Jewish symbolism of that folded napkin, when a Jewish person, I believe when they were eating at the table and they were going to come back, they weren't done, they would leave a folded napkin there. 
meaning God will be back. So the symbolism of that folded napkin in the empty tomb is Jesus Christ telling us, I'm coming back. And that's a Jewish understanding that a lot of Gentiles we, we miss and we overlook. So if they're trying to get a body out quick, fast, and in a hurry, why would they waste time folding a napkin? It makes no sense. And again, where's the body? What about the Romans were secretly converted? The Roman apostles were scared and defeated. Again, they didn't even expect a resurrection. They expected Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. And that didn't happen at that time. They were even doubtful. And then again, it doesn't explain why the tomb is empty and where's the body. None of his arguments are satisfactory or have explanatory power or can explain why it's empty. The rumors of the Romans' guard uh, uh, was a lie and the rocks way exaggerated. Again, where's the body? And they didn't expect it. Anybody... Anybody with half a brain that reads the Bible and you read the accounts of the apostles after the death of Christ, they didn't expect a resurrection. And they weren't very courageous at that time. It doesn't make sense why they would have made all of this a lie. So his other hypotheses have no explanatory power. Then he goes on to say, well, even the strongest versions of these apostolic conspiracy theories may appear unlikely to those convinced of the resurrection. It is important to note that accepting the biblical explanation requires assigning greater belief to supernatural events. So essentially what he's saying is, this is what happens when we take evolution and naturalism over creationism. The moment we put God in a box The moment we think there is no supernatural, then God is not only impossible, but it's inconceivable. This is why evolution and naturalism is so damaging, especially within Christianity. Because the moment we start adopting million, million years ago, whatever the case is, now we're trying to put naturalistic explanations into miracles. And because we only understand the natural world, anything outside of the natural world, i.e. supernatural, is inconceivable. So that's why he says it requires assisting, assigning greater belief to supernatural events. He can't accept a supernatural event because he has to hold to naturalistic evolutionary theory. That's why standing for a literal six-day, 24-hour creation is important. That's why it's been so much attacked over the decades. And that's why the church needs to, I'm sorry, we need to get a backbone on this this debate and stand up for a literal six-day creation. I mean, you look at any of my videos that I do on that, I get a lot of nasty feedback. But that's okay. This is what happens when we go down the route of naturalism. We make God or anything supernatural inconceivable, let alone impossible. You see, another claim that this guy makes, or he says another claim the apologist offers is that the apostles had no motive to lie. Here you go. This is his thoughts. They had nothing to gain from stealing the body and claiming he was resurrected. But if they were intent to rebel against the oppressive Roman rule, They had every motive to expand their cause through deception. Hmm, never heard of that one before. 
Maybe they lied about the resurrection because they wanted to overthrow Rome. And by lying about the resurrection, they could get many people to join their cause and they could overthrow Rome. This guy really shows his ignorance of first century Rome-Jewish relationships. Number one, remember a group called the Zealots? The Jewish Zealots were already doing their thing, even from back from the Maccabean Revolt with Antiochus. So you have your Zealots, and they're the ones rebelling against Rome on a regular basis. If the apostles went to overthrow Rome, they would have just aligned with the Zealots. Plus, most of the Jewish people rejected Jesus as Messiah. To try to claim Jesus rose from the dead, now they don't only have Rome attacking them, now they have their Jewish friends attacking them because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So there is no way that they would lie about this to rally a Jewish cause to overthrow Rome because now they got two enemies against them, Rome and their own countrymen. Because you see what happened to the apostles when they started preaching the resurrection? Oh, the religious leaders hated it. Right away, they got thrown in prison. They got beat right away. And then you see what happened as far as martyrdom, stuff like that. This guy is clearly ignorant of first century Rome-Israel relationships. You see, he says, the video offers no citation that the psychologists support the claim of the hallucinations cannot happen to large groups of people or cannot include tactile sensation, but a cursory review of such. A cursory, he did a cursory review, and a cursory is about that much. A cursory review suggests both of these claims are false. Tactile and mass hallucinations do happen. The most obvious mechanism for mass hallucination, possibly resulting in mass Jesus sighting, would be some form of chemical agent temporarily present in the water supply. So oh, they were drinking some water, and water was poisoned, and now they're hallucinating all this, right? Okay, so let's break this down. The video offers no citation that the psychologists support to claim. We're back in Habermas's dissertation, 400-page dissertation. Number one, the word hallucination, not hallucinations or hallucinogenic or any, but hallucination is used 22 times in his dissertation. Okay, he has uh, five citations on this page alone talking about this hallucination aspect from noted people and even people within the medical field. So where are the citations? In Habermas's dissertation. If you want to know it, look for it. Of the people who study the resurrection, he's not studying the resurrection He's trying to spout his preconceived idea. National Library of Medicine. This is what they have to say. These are my citations. Hallucinations are believed to be influenced by what's known as priors. It is more than mere precept of sensory information, instead involving a synthetic process based upon prior experiences. When you're looking at what causes hallucinations, there's been studies done as far as why do people hallucinate? And what, why do they hallucinate what they hallucinate, right? Why do you see and feel, stuff like that, okay? So the first thing we're going to look at is the fact that hallucinations are most often attributed by what's known as priors. 
priors are simply a prior experience. Right here, this is the same National Library of Medicine on the bottom. They're beliefs before new evidence. One's belief about a quantity or dimension before new evidence is taken into account. Delusions, we're going to get into this in, in a minute. Delusions are different. Sometimes people, and I think he does it as well, they think a delusion and a hallucination are the same thing. They're completely different things, completely different from a psychological aspect, psychiatric aspect. Hallucinations can be tactile, can be sensory. You know, hey, I'm hallucinating. I just did LSD. I got bugs all over me, and I'm scratching. Hallucination. A delusion does not have that sensory perception, according to studies, but rather a delusion is a false belief. I think I'm a bird. I just watched a a YouTube shorts video from a guy called Inspiring Philosophy, I think it was, where this lady said she was a red hawk, a red-tailed hawk, trapped inside of a human body. Contrary to all evidence presented to that person, if she's being accurate, she truly believes she's a red-tailed hawk. That is a delusion. Contrary to all the evidence in front of you, you still believe something false. Delusion, false belief. Hallucination, most often from prior experience, prior thought, and it's got sensory, tactile, uh, you know, you touch, taste, see, feel, whatever the case is. Totally different. As far as delusions, the apostles would not have had a delusion because they didn't expect him to resurrect. So they would not have been stressed to the point what people will say, oh, they were just so stressed. And so they thought they saw him alive. That's a delusion. That's a false belief. The apostles never expected a resurrection. They wouldn't have been stressed in the fact that, oh, he's supposed to be alive. He's dead and he's still there. They would never hold on to a false belief because they never expected this resurrection. Now, the hallucination is what they say. They say, okay, maybe they just hallucinated him. They saw him. After all, Thomas, you know, touched him, right? Again, none of the apostles expected the death. And so they had no prior. Remember national, uh, remember this back here? With the National Library of Medicine, that it says it's based upon prior expectations. A hallucination is based upon a prior expectation. The apostles had no prior expectation of Jesus rising from the dead. They expected him to be dead. When they came back and said, hey, Jesus rose, they were like, you're crazy. They did not expect that. They would not have hallucinated because they had no preconceived idea that Jesus Christ was going to be alive. As the video offers no citations that psychologists support the claim. Again, where's your sources? He does cite a source. Finally. Wikipedia. Seriously? You see, even this with Wikipedia, it doesn't even argue his point. It just merely says that hallucinations can be tactile. They can, you can feel them, sense them. That's all this says. It has nothing to do with the argument he is trying to make. Again, we're going to go back to National Library of Medicine. What's interesting, again, delusion, hallucination, two different things. One's a false belief. One is based on prior experience, knowledge, thoughts, whatever. 
People can share delusions. Did you know that? I didn't know that until I started studying this. More than one people can share the same exact delusion. It's called shared psychotic disorder. And I'm not even going to try to say that French name. Uh, I'm assuming it's French because there's an X in there. But uh, it has been shown that people can share a delusion, a false belief. So where am I getting my resources? Wikipedia? No, National Library of Medicine. About the Merck Manual. Did I pronounce it right, Taylor? Is it the Merck Manual? So this is a very influential medical uh, catalog, if you will, right? And in there they say, uh, shared psychosis is now considered a subset of delusional disorder. The American Psychology Association, Psychological Association, uh, a central feature is an identical or similar delusion that develops in an individual who is involved with another individual who has already had a psychotic disorder with prominent delusions. Shared psychotic disorders can involve many people. More than one person can have the same delusion, but a delusion is not a hallucination. And so, again, this is the fallacy of equivocation, and they're trying to use a word and meaning and trying to have this meaning mean different things in different times. He's not being accurate. There has never been a documented case where hallucinations have been shared. There has been documented cases of delusions being shared, but they are not the same. They are not the same. According to the National Institute on Aging, according to all medical and psychiatric institutions, again, a delusion is not the same thing as a hallucination. They would not have had a delusion because they wouldn't have had this false belief because they didn't even believe it anyways. They wouldn't have had a hallucination because, again, they didn't have this prior uh, expectation of a risen Messiah. So even when you look at the hallucination theory that he points out, it doesn't hold any water. You see, again, like I said, his Wikipedia link, it doesn't help his argument at all. It just says, yep, if you hallucinate, you'll feel stuff. So who cares? See, but say, say science does end up revealing me and Matt can hallucinate the same exact thing. Hear the same thing, feel the same thing. Say we can hallucinate the same thing. Maybe my rock beat his challenger in a race, right? We both hallucinate it. Even if that's the case, again, Thomas still doubted he wasn't there for a mass, mass hallucination. But the biggest question of them all, where's the body? Even if, say they all hallucinated, and you have this big issue within Rome, now this belief of Jesus rose from the dead is just spreading so much and causing so much issue. But they hallucinated it. And Jesus is still in the tomb. Why couldn't they show the body? All they had to do was say, here's Jesus. And I guarantee you, most of those people would have just, I just another false one. Where's the body? We will find writings from extra biblical historians, Tacitus, Josephus, Lucian, Pliny, people like that. They all talk about this idea, this discussion of a resurrection. Not one of them ever mentions, oh, this was made up. Oh, they lied about it. They showed the. Not one of them mentions anything like that. 
Oh, it gets even better. This guy says, in my opinion, the most plausible explanation for Jesus' resurrection is that he simply never existed. Again, he thinks this Jesus has, uh, is a symbolic of a psychedelic drug, or in other words, a walking mushroom is what people say. He says less probable is that some version of the conspiracy theory was happened around 367. Uh, far less likely, a time-traveling advanced extraterrestrial enacted a resurrection. That sounds pretty that sounds pretty interesting, right? I mean, how many of us have seen the photos, like the 1875 photo, and there's a person there in a nice suit, and they're on a cell phone, right? Maybe time-traveling wormholes, I don't know, Hawkins... What, what's going on? Or even less likely, maybe it was a quantum state near infin- infinitely improbable event where Jesus' corpse disappeared by way of quantum tunneling and just went somewhere else. Because he can try to argue all those from a naturalistic explanation. Because he cannot see a supernatural miracle at work. He has to go to aliens, time traveling, quantum theory, string theory, all these other things. Because they're within the realm of science. He cannot see a miracle. So he would rather believe that nonsense than to look at the heavens, declare the glory of God, and the firmament show at the sandy work. You see, some of you may have noticed. What's up, Will? It could be. Yep, it could be. You know, if you seek me, you will find me. So you may have been wondering, on the title, there's like a half star. When I put this graphic together, I, I had five blank white stars. I ended up giving the guy this article review, right? So we got to review the article. The article is very poor. Not scholarly. The one citation he has is from a Wikipedia article webpage that doesn't even prove his argument, unless his argument is that when you hallucinate, you can feel it or see it. Very poor scholarship. But I gave him half a star. Have this fascination. Mushroom. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So this is my conclusion after reading the article. Now, if you want a, a link to the article, let me know. I can send it to you. You can read it in its entirety. And it would be a good apologetic practice, if you will, to see what the arguments are and how would you respond. The author is highly biased, unwilling to consider evidence to the contrary. While he rebukes the original post for what he believes is lack of citation, the only citation he provides is from Wikipedia, and it does not support his argument. He conflates delusion with hallucinations, is very ignorant of first century relations between Rome and the Jewish people. In the end, what sounds like a solid objection is again realized as simply a lot of words with no substance or citation and a revelation of the problems with naturalism. I only give him half a star for not having any words misspelled. You know, you do college papers, you know, you get some points for grammar. So I give him half a star for, you know, the grammar. But in the end, I mean, Easter's coming up. I don't know how much we're all around, you know, people of this ilk.
that are just bent on trying to disprove Christianity and stuff like that. But you may hear some of these objections. Like I said in the beginning, the video that we had watched, it was a good basic apologetic video. You could simply regurgitate it. But if somebody comes back to you with some of the stuff, this guy just came back, Philip Jenkins, John Allegro, oh, what about this theory? What about this article? You know, what about hallucinations? Well, they are tactile sensory perceptions. You know, we've been proven that. Do they start bringing questions like that? If we just simply regurgitate, now we're like, I don't don't know, you know, let me look. It's a good question. Let me look and I'll get back with you. You know, what's a good contact? Continue that discussion farther along. But I just encourage us not to regurgitate, but to simply actually have have a drive to listen to some of the objections and to find out how can you reach that person. And again, I'm going to use him before, Ravi Zacharias. Behind every question is a person asking that question. Behind every objection is a soul with one or two destinies. I'm not, not destiny, you know, but destinations. And so whether it's Easter, whether it's Christmas, or any of these other days that, you know, all the atheists want to come out of the woodworks, let us pray, God, use me to reach them through apologetics, not to defend the faith, but to persuade somebody into salvation. And that's what this is about. The intent is not to make fun of this guy. The intent is to rip up his article and his objections because they're all fluff and of no substance. Put a rock in his shoe, right? Greg Kokel, exactly. Put a stone in their shoe so that they have to deal with it. So I hope this has been encouraging, enlightening, a blessing, and uh Now, with that, we'll close with prayer. And then if you have any questions, comments, we can talk about that once we go offline. So let us pray. God, I thank you again for this evening. And Lord, I pray for this individual that wrote the article. And and I just pray that there would be something that would come alongside him and and he would realize there are of his ways and that he can find the truth in the resurrection of Christ. And so, God, I pray with everything we talked about tonight, it would be just, like I said, another uh, tool to put in our tool bag to go ahead and just reach somebody uh, for the cause of Christ. And so may you just give us boldness to speak and love and grace to discuss these things with people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.